Psalm 99 tonight. Psalm 99. We're closing in on 100. Psalm 99. Let's just read through it first, and then we'll go back through and discuss it. Uh, Let me begin. Psalm 99, verse 1. The Lord reigneth. You've heard that before here in this section. Let the peoples tremble. He sitteth between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and He is high above all the peoples. Let them praise Thy name. Let them praise Thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. The King's strength also loveth judgment. Thou dost establish equity. Thou executest judgment and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt ye the Lord our God, and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among those who call upon his name, they called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke unto them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance that he gave them. Thou answeredest them, O Lord our God. Thou wast a God who forgavest them, though thou hast taken vengeance on their inventions. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. This psalm has received the nickname over the years as the Holy, Holy, Holy Psalm. Did you notice that three times, one at the end of verse 3, again at the end of verse 5, and then again at the end of verse 9, we have the statement that God or the name of God is holy. And we're going to let those three endings sort of divide this psalm up for us in three divisions. Now, the old writers were were constantly looking for traces and whiffs of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And when they found three of something, they almost always would sort of gravitate in that direction. And there were some of the old writers who, commenting on this psalm, would point out that the first section is dealing with the holiness of God the Father, the second section, the holiness of God the Son, the third section, the holiness of God the Holy Spirit. That may be stretching things a little much. That seems to be finding in here what you want to find rather than perhaps what's actually there. But at the the very least we can say is that the first section, verses 1 through 3, tell us that God is holy because of who He is. The second section tells us that God is holy because of what He does. And the third section tells us that God is holy because of what He has said, the revelation, the utterances that have come from Him. So we're going to look at them in that light. God is holy because of who He is, because of what He's done, because of what He said. Okay? Let's begin with the first one. Holy because of who He is. By now, this is almost like a broken record, this little phrase. The Lord of Jehovah, Yahweh, reigns. Look back in Psalm 93, verse 1. What do we see? The Lord reigns. Uh, Psalm 96, verse 10, saying, Among the heathen, the Lord reigns. In Psalm 97, verse 1, the Lord reigns. Now, here again in Psalm 99, verse 1. 
the Lord reigns. So notice that we have had the repetition of the fact that God is reigning in the heavens. I want you to notice, however, the different reaction this time to the fact of God's reign. If you look back to Psalm 97, verse 1, it says, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Our psalm tonight says, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. Very different reaction, isn't it? Uh, we would ask ourselves, well, which one should we do? In, the, in view of God reigning, which emotion should we feel? Rejoicing and joy or trembling? Well, there's a sense in which both are true, aren't they? They are two sides to this coin. That the God that we worship is on the one hand a righteous, just, holy God who will, and I'm sort of butchering the text here, but Exodus 34 where he says to Moses, He will by no means clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. He is that kind of God. And yet, on the other hand, he is the Lord God who is merciful and kind and compassionate and loving. And so, you say, well, wait a minute, which God is he? Well, he's both. Both of those things come together in the holy personality of God Almighty. And therefore, we see his goodness and his righteousness oftentimes in Scripture set side by side. In fact, notice in Psalm 98... Uh, verse 8, Psalm 98, verse 8, we have the floods clapping their hands, the hills being joyful together before the Lord. But what is he doing? He's coming to judge the earth. With righteousness shall he judge the world and the peoples with equity. Um, whether you rejoice in God coming in judgment is going to depend on whether you're a lawbreaker or not. The criminal doesn't much like the fact that there's a new sheriff in town. Uh, the folks that are law-abiding, they don't mind, they rejoice in that fact that somebody's here to keep order, to restore what is just and holy and right. So your reaction is going to depend a lot on the condition of your heart. There are a number of texts that we see the two things set side by side. I, I won't, uh, do you recall in Romans 11, the one that came immediately to my mind earlier today in thinking about this was where the branches are broken off, the, wild, the, the olive tree and wild olive branches grafted in. You know the text there. And in verse 22 of Romans 11, Paul writes, Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God. Behold. Take a look. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. He goes on to say, On them who fail, severity, but toward thee, goodness. So there you see both sides of the coin. And therefore, our fear, our, our worship of God should be joyful, but it's also coupled with the fear of God, with a holy, awe-respecting fear of God Almighty. I've often said that I don't ever remember being scared of my father when I was growing up, However, I feared him. You say, well, what do you mean by that? I feared to disobey him because I knew what the consequences were going to be. I knew my father too well to know he wasn't going to let me get away with it. I'd been out behind the woodshed too many times with him. I knew what was going to happen if I crossed him. And yet, at the same time, I wasn't scared of him. I loved my father. He loved me. I was comforted by that. So there, those two things go together. Our friend Jerry Bridges, one of his books is titled The Joy of fearing God. It seems almost like an oxymoron, doesn't it? 
But there is those two things that we see here, the two reactions to the fact that God reigns. In one case, the nations rejoicing. the other case, the world trembling before Him. Notice God's sovereignty now and His reign is being described. Uh, in verse 1, again, He sits between the cherubim. What are cherubim? The little cherubs, yeah, it is. We well, a cher, what's the difference between a cherub and a cherubim? What have I told you about Hebrew? You put an I M on the end of it, you got more than one. That's the plural. So a cherub is a singular cherub. A cherubim or cherubim are more than one. And why would you say that God sits between the cherubim? The Right? The mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant had on each end a cherub, a golden cherub with their wings outstretched over over the Ark. And so what does that make the Ark? If God sits, well, where would you say a king sits? What do we call that? It's a throne. So where would God's throne be? Well, it's between the cherubim. Now, this is getting me way off topic. I knew you was going to do this to me because you are going to push me in this direction. No, you can tell I'm already leaning in that direction. just want to go there. But the cherubim, when we see them, form what we would call the throne and the, and the chariot of God. Uh, we see that in Ezekiel very clearly where God's throne is seated upon these four creatures, four creatures. And it's sort of like um, Ezekiel says... They, didn't have, they, they just looked in the direction they wanted to go, and that's the way they went. He obviously was trying to describe to us uh, what we would call a, uh, not just four-wheel drive, but four-wheel steering, that any time these beings, they're alive, and rather than having four wheels that have to roll only in one direction like a wagon, the four cherubs, cherubim, I guess we would call them, uh, on, that formed each corner of this chariot simply conveyed the throne wherever he goes. When they move the ark, if the ark is then the throne of God, how'd they move it? Up on their shoulders, right? You had man lifting, and, and what then becomes the ark? Well, it's the replica. If we ask ourselves, where is God reigning? Is He actually reigning there between the cherubim and that ark inside the tabernacle? Well, clearly the cherubim He's reigning between here is not down here on earth, it's up there. This is the earthly replica of that one. And men carry this one. Cherubs carry that one. And so we see the correspondence between the earthly sanctuary and the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly temple of God. Remember that we were told in the book of Hebrews, well, he's just quoting from the Old Testament, that Moses was to make it according to the pattern that was shown him in the mount. The figure, the model. It's like a model airplane compared to a real airplane. The tabernacle is sort of the branch office of God. <laughs> it's where he... Uh, when, when you describe these things, Isaiah put it like this. God speaks through Isaiah saying, Heaven... I, I'm giving you Isaiah 66, verse 1. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. I, and, and then the question follows... Where is the house you're going to build for me? 
you better get you some pretty long two-by-fours. If he sits in heaven and he rests his feet on earth. Now this is speaking of the custom in the Oriental kingdoms of a king seated on a throne. So we have a description of Solomon's throne, made out of marble, inlaid with marble and all these wondrous stuff and gems and so forth, and two lions on each side, and then six steps that came up with two lions on each side of the steps. And that's very much in keeping with the custom of the Oriental-type kings. They have this elaborate throne. Then they had a footstool, and oftentimes the footstool has engraved on it the names of their enemies. So that when they put their feet, in other words, the the expression in Scripture of putting your enemies under your feet, it was literally displayed by the king sitting there in his throne with his feet resting on top of these enemies who had been placed under him. Well, think about what's going on in Isaiah. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. God is in the process of putting everything under the feet of His Son. And so this is sort of the branch office. (laughs) I'm just struggling for ways of describing it. This is the outpost of heaven here on earth. The real throne of God is in the heavens. But the tabernacle in a model, in a figure, displayed the rule and reign of God Almighty. And so that's the first thing we notice. That He is seated between the cherubim, in the heavens, and notice, the, let the earth be moved. He's not moving, the earth is. The idea is, is that he is prominent, he is uh, in charge of what is happening on earth. At his word, the earth moves and shakes. We talk about people being movers and shakers. Of course, I'm not talking about this kind of shaking, but I'm talking about people who are the movers and shakers out there in the world, the folks that make things happen, and that is the expression here. He sits in the heavens, the earth moves, moves at his will, at his qualm. Uh, you'll notice as well, he is described in verse 2 as being great in Zion. Uh, he is high above all the peoples. Uh, how high is God? Uh, we, we use that expression... When we, well, we got a lot of things we mean. We say somebody's high. We may mean high on dope. Uh, we may mean high in power, in position, in authority. And that is clearly what is being spoken of here. And if I were to ask, and, and when Jesus, for instance, prayed to God the Father, which direction did he look? Up. He turned his eyes to heaven. Now, if I was in Australia, I'd be looking the opposite direction, you understand. It's not that God is literally in that direction, but it is the idea that He is above us. He is high above us. And so when I speak to God, I I cast my eyes up. I look up to where God is reigning in the heavens. And it is a natural way of us expressing what we're finding here, that yes, this is a great God. He is high above the nations. In fact, if we were to say, how high is he? Well, he's so high he can't go any higher. The, the scriptures speak of the third heaven. You know, Paul was caught up into the third heaven in the ancient world. You had the first heaven was the atmosphere where the birds fly, where we live and breathe. Second heaven to them was where the stars were. And then the third heaven is up there where God reigns. And so it is that Paul was caught up to the third heaven, to the very realm of God Almighty. And there is not a fourth heaven. That's it. 
That's as high as you can go where God is. So notice that this is expressing that God is reigning. He is not some little local territorial potentate. He is the great king who reigns over all things and over all nations. And then the admonition in verse 3 is, Let them praise thy great and terrible name. Sometimes we find words that in our vernacular just don't quite get the job done, but but there's not much better we can put in their place. I'm thinking of the hymn we sometimes sing, How Sweet and Awful is the Place, because awful in English means bad. But awful literally means full of awe. Uh, Like wonderful means full of wonder. It's miraculous, amazing. In the same sense, awful is a good word, but unfortunately to us, we, in fact, Janet, when she was uh, transcribing the words to that, spelled it A-W-E-F-U-L rather than A-W-F-U-L, at least to try to give a clue that we're not talking about it being bad, we're talking about it being awful. Same thing here about terrible. Why would you ever call the name of God terrible? Well, where do you get ter- terrible? It, ter- it terrifies. It is a terrifying name. There is, in other words, connected with God, something about His name that inspires terror, especially to those who are His enemies. Now, there is a love that casts out fear. John talks about the terrifying fear of God, so that his children can approach him. Uh, I think I told you the story. I, I still get tickled every time I hear this. Uh, a old preacher boy from Georgia, one of the pastor's meetings, was telling this story about Vince Dooley, who coached for the Georgia Bulldogs for years. And Dooley had a, a rule uh, on his team that if you ever quit the team, you couldn't come back. And one the big old Georgia Bulldog lineman, big old black fella, got had a lot of personal problems going on one weekend, and he come Monday morning, he just quit the team. Well, a couple of days later, after thinking about it, he wants back on the team, and Vince Dooley won't even see him. He's sitting outside the athletic building at the University of Georgia, out there on a bench, just bawling his eyes out. Big old Georgia Bulldog lineman. And because uh, Dooley, the secretary, won't even let him pass her, won't even see him. And a little boy comes skipping down the sidewalk, and he stops, and he looks at this big old guy over there bawling his eyes out and says, Hey, what's wrong with you? And he looks up, and he says, Coach Dooley won't see me. He says, Well, why won't he see you? Well, I quit the team. He said, Well, come on. I'll take you to see him. And he hops up, and he goes with him, this little boy, and they walk right past that secretary who had been stopping him every time he tried to get in there. He opens the door right into Vince Dooley's office. The little boy says, Hi, Dad. There's a guy here who wants to see you. <laughs> there's a sense in which Christ, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. If the Son introduces you, if the Son brings you in, you're okay. And therefore the terror leaves and departs. But God's name is nevertheless terrifying, terrible. I, I liken it to walking up to the edge of the Grand Canyon. If you've ever had that experience. I mean, the Grand Canyon, I mean, after all, what do you do there? Look. That's it. What do you look at? A hole. A hole. I mean, people come from all over the place to go stand there and look at a hole in the ground. 
but what a hole. And I remember, I, I was 13 years old, I it was on a cross-country trip with my uncle and my cousin. I had a cousin that was a year older than me, and we were headed up to the Seattle's World's Fair in 1961, uh, camping out our way across the West and from El Paso is where we started. And uh, just sort of running up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, and whoa, you know, whoa, whoa, yeah. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden the hair stands up on the back of your neck. And the idea of familiarity and casualness just goes out the window. Uh, completely similar situation. We were backpacking. Last trip to Wyoming, backpacked up to the what's called the Circle of the Towers, the premier rock climbing place in the country. And we scrambled up the backside of Warbonnet Peak, these huge 13,000 feet above sea level peaks. They're in the Wind River Range of Wyoming. You've never heard of it, and that's just fine, because those folks just soon, you never hear of that. So they got it to themselves, you see. But it is something. It is a sight. We were coming up the backside, and we kept scrambling up these huge boulders, going over glaciers and everything, working our way higher and higher and higher. And there's this big saddle, and we kept coming closer and closer and closer, and finally got to the top in a sheer drop of over a thousand feet straight down. It just would scare you. To, I mean, you just couldn't. You couldn't make yourself get over there. Jessica was about eight years old, and uh, she wanted to see. So I made her lay down on her belly, and I held on to her ankles and let her scoot out so she could get her head over the side and look. I mean, it was that terrifying. The sight was that awe-inspiring. And that's why the writer here says, God's holy. There's a sense in which, and, and, and again, I come back to the idea of what is holy. When we say God is holy, most of the time we mean He's pure, He's righteous, He's... But remember, holy, yes, God is that, and holiness, yes, reflects that because the character of God is holy. But the word holy really isn't talking about... I I think I mentioned to you that one of the words for a prostitute in Hebrew was a holy woman. Uh, When... Joseph, uh, wasn't Joseph, it was Judah. Um, you remember his daughter-in-law, long, sordid story, dressed up like a prostitute? And uh, anyway, you know the story. Well, he went back looking for her and said, where is this? And the word is a prostitute. It's a temple prostitute. Because that's, a lot of times, prostitution was connected to this fertility rites and rituals of these pagan temples. Now, how in the world would you call a woman who's a prostitute holy? Because holiness at its root means to be set apart to something, separated to something. And these temple prostitutes were considered holy because they were separated unto the worship of whatever temple, whatever God they they represented, you see. So in other words, the reason we think of holiness meaning purity and righteousness and all that is because the God we're separated to is is right and pure and upright. You you understand? It's the nature of the God we're separated to. But holiness at its root is just different, unique, um, not like us. I I call it, I coined the word, because I couldn't find the word, the other than-ness of God. 
He's not like us. He's holy. And He's holy in His nature, as we see here, of who He is. We may have some power. He has infinite power. We may have some authority. He has all authority. We may have a little throne in the business office where we run that we got a little bit of authority, but He's sitting on the big one and ruling over all things. So His name, notice, and that speaks of His nature. His name is great and terrible. Okay, that's the first thing. In other words, He's holy because of who He is. Yeah, I'm talking. Yeah. The other side. Yes. You, you are exactly right. We have a casualness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is a sense of our we serve with godly fear and reverence this holy God. And we, on the one hand, and there is the balance. We've had a lot of discussions about how do we worship. Uh, on the one hand, our worship ought to be joyful. We're thankful. I think of all the adjectives. And yet at the same time, coupled with this holy reverence and fear of God. Because like you say, we are, we're in a culture that since the 60s, the idea of formality has gone out the window. And a lot of that was good. A lot of that was put on and fake and contrived and worked up. But at the same time then, it's very easy to fall into a very flippant attitude regarding God and the things of God. And trifle with those holy things. One thing we learn from the Old Testament is you don't trifle with a holy God. He means business. He's deadly serious about what he does. So that's the first thing. We... Praise Him because He's holy, and He's holy because of who He is. And then as we come into this second section, notice now we're talking about, in verse 4, the King's strength. And, and this is why I say that we're now looking at His holiness because of the things that He does. And it's interesting that the King's strength also loves judgment, or justice would be a better translation here, righteousness, equity. Notice the King's strength loves justice. That's a strange expression to me. But notice that it would behoove us if we are worshiping this great and holy, terrible God to stop for a moment and ask ourselves, I wonder what this great God likes. I wonder what He desires. I wonder what this God loves. What does His power love? His power loves justice. In other words, the thing that moves his power, the thing that drives him, is this love for justice and judgment. Notice as well, then we find his law. Not only does he love judgment, he establishes equity. To establish, makes it, in other words, he makes it the rule of the land. It's the rule of the kingdom. Because he loves justice, he makes it the law. And when you ask yourself, anybody remember what is it that God requires of us? Anybody remember that text? 
Yeah, yeah, we all got it between the two of you. But to love mercy, to walk humbly, to love justice is in there somewhere. Where is that? Micah? Micah 6, 6 is where I'll start. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? What does He want from me? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath shown thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. This God who loves justice requires of us that we do justly. See the the correlation? And so this God whose power is inclined, He loves justice, establishes justice, and then notice the third thing, He executes justice and righteousness in Jacob. He, and when we say he executes, we, we have, we're fixing to elect. For better or worse, we're fixing to elect a new head of the executive branch of our government. That's what the president is. We have three branches, right? We've got the judicial branch, we've got the legislative branch, we've got the executive branch. The legislative branch makes the law. The judicial judicial branch interprets the law. What does the executive branch do? He executes the law, supposed to. In other words, that's why you have a cabinet position called the attorney general. He's in charge of executing the laws of the land. And that is why when somebody like Bill Clinton lies under oath that it's such a serious matter that it's not just about sex. It's the fact that the chief executive of the executive branch feels no compulsion himself to obey the law. That's the seriousness of the matter. And we can pick on Nixon and many others in, in the past as well. The executive branch has to execute. They, they are the authority that sees that the law is followed. Notice here, here's the third thing. God loves justice, He commands justice, and now He executes justice. In other words, cross Him, and you will know His judgment upon man. So those three things all, all come together. So what do we do? Verse 5, we, we are to exalt Him. Now, how are you going to exalt God? You're supposed to exalt Him and worship at His footstool, for He is holy. Notice again, now we're worshiping out of respect of what he's doing. Oftentimes we use that language. We're going to glorify God, right? We're going to exalt him. We're going to raise him up, lift him up. Sometimes in our singing we use that. Well, tell me, how in the world are you going to exalt God? He's already as high as he can get. Are you going to be able to grant him any more authority or power than he's already got? Uh, You know, now we can exalt a man to the presidency by casting our vote. But how in the world would you and I lift up God any higher than He already is? I I hope that you're seeing, well, this is not talking about that. 
what it's talking about inside here. In other words, objectively, he's as high as he can go. There is no higher than God. The question is, subjectively, in the heart of man, let me give you a, a good text to see this with, 1 Peter 3, and I'm thinking that doesn't sound right, but I hope it is, 1 Peter 3. Yes, it is. Verse 15. 1 Peter 3.15. He says, but sanctify the Lord God. Now that means make Him holy. To sanctify something, set it apart. We've already talked that's the root of holiness. He's set apart. He's holy. In other words, this would say literally make Him holy. Well, how can I make Him holy? He's already holy. But look at where you to make Him holy. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. In other words, yes, there's a sense in which He's reigning on the throne in the heavens, but is He reigning on your throne? Is He reigning in your heart? You you can't exalt Him any higher than He already is in heaven, but is He exalted in you? That's the question. And therefore, there's this other side, my experience, and so we are exhorted to exalt Him and to worship at His footstool. Where's His footstool? Here on earth. All right, third thing. He is holy because of what He has said. I want to remind you that Paul, in the section where he deals with prophecy and tongues and so forth, spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, um, he prefaces that whole discussion by reminding his hearer that once upon a time you worshipped dumb idols. Not dumb in the sense of stupid, although they were, they didn't have a brain, but they were dumb in the sense they couldn't talk. And the great contrast between the worship of these idols who couldn't talk and the worship of God is because we worship a God who speaks. He communicates. He has given us utterances. And in those utterances, He has revealed Himself. We didn't go around just sort of thinking, staring at our navel, trying to figure out who God is, He has made a self-disclosure of who He is. We don't have to wonder. He's told us. We don't have to wonder about what His will is. He's given us His law. Do you you see how this unfolds? That unlike the heathen who were constantly trying to figure out, well, what's the God we're going to look at? I'm out here whittling my God. You know, as Jeremiah says, I cut down that tree and I'm burning, cooking my food over half of it. The other half I'm whittling on it, making me an idol to bow down to. It's sort of a little parody on the stupidity of idolatry. But but what are you going to make him look like? You know, what's your guy going to Well, you're going to have to imagine it, aren't you? you? Somebody's got to figure out, well, I think he's like this or I think he's like that. The Hebrews didn't have to worry about that. They had the revelation of God Almighty that told them the nature of their God told them how he would be worshipped, told them what he expected of them, what his law for them was. As a result, notice the reference is made here of three men in particular, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, who called upon God and God answered them. We have a number of occasions where that happened. It's Moses and Aaron back at the giving of the law and the Exodus. We have it happening with Samuel. Uh, There's an interesting 
passage over in 1 Samuel 7. Would you look there just a moment? 1 Samuel 7. First Samuel seven. Down in verse nine, and Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering, holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. Notice that's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord, to cry out to the Lord, to call His His way. Notice that God not only is the one they called upon, but God is the one then, according to our text, who answers them. I'm thinking of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and the God who by fire answers, let Him be God. And God answered by fire, didn't He? There's your answer. You want to know who's God? There's your answer. He is a God whom men call on, they talk to Him, and guess what? He's capable of returning the favor. He can. Re- it's not a one-way line. I had one of those down in Mexico one time. Phone worked one way. I was stranded in Veracruz Airport, and I was trying to call up here to get a hold of Linda, get a phone number, and, I, and after about a half an hour of staring at the phone, trying to figure out the instructions, I finally got the thing. You had to use a credit card and all this, and I finally got it to dial. There were six phones, one of which had a dial tone. And uh, anyway, I finally get the number in there, and I hear it ringing on the other end. Linda picks up. Hello. I said, Linda, hello, Linda. Click. <laughs> the one phone worked one way. Long story. But anyway, all of that to say, This is not a one-way street whereby we speak to God, but there is no word from God to us. Notice how that is being exalted here. They call upon His name. They called upon the Lord. He answered them. He spoke unto them in the cloudy pillar. They kept His testimonies and the ordinance that He gave them. Notice, He has. they have cried to Him. He's responded to them. This is why God is holy, because of what He says, His revelation. Thou answered them, O Lord our God. Thou wast a God who forgavest them. Though thou hast taken vengeance on their inventions, (laughs) their devices. It's an interesting word. It's a word that pops up in the Psalms, or Proverbs, that man has many inventions. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord shall stand. In other words, man has all his schemes, his plans, but God's plan is going to prevail. That's the sense of the Proverbs. Here we have that word again. Man has his many inventions, his mousetraps, his his contraptions, his ideas. And notice, what does God think of our ideas? (laughs) Not much. You have vengeance on their inventions. You say, well, I just sort of think God needs to be worshipped this way. Well, that's what Ezra decided. You know, remember when they were carrying the ark and the ark began to tip and he reached up and touched the ark? God struck him dead. It's what the sons of Aaron thought that day when they took strange fire and waved it before the Lord. I mean, let's burn something. (laughs) I I remember 
first time Christmas at this oh, long story back in Wyoming well, this Christmas program and at the end they pass out everybody's got a candle I don't know what it is about candles folks but why is it that it's just a religious thing to do to burn a candle I don't know but here we were sitting there like a fool they turned the lights out perfectly good lights turn them out and we're all sitting there holding a candle because it's just a religious thing to do you know and I was just thinking, Lord, please don't strike me dead sitting <laughs> here holding this candle. <laughs> because those two boys, Nadab and Abihu, waved some strange fire before God and he struck them dead. And he didn't need their inventions. He didn't want their inventions. He wanted his way. Uh, when we think of how does how should we worship God, well let's check with him. I mean, you say, Well, I like this kind of worship. Well, that's right, not really the question, is it? The real question is what kind of worship he likes. Well, that's what Jesus was saying to the woman of the well. The hour is coming now is when the true God's going to be worshipped in spirit and truth. We're going to have to do it his way. It's not my personal preference here of what I like. It's the question is what does God like. And so notice he has taken vengeance on our vengeance and yet he forgave us. Isn't that a strange deal? It's like we use the expression, and I don't like it, I just don't know how to improve on it, that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. And I, I mean, I struggle with that because how do you separate the sin from the sinner? You know, you're going to judge the sin, but you're not going to judge the sinner. That's not easy to do except the way God does it. Yeah, Robert? And hates his sin. Yeah. Well, and, and like I said, I, I wish there was a better way I could express that. And, and here you see it expressed that he forgave us, but man, he, he took us to the woodshed over our sin. And that's the point, is that God is never going to pat us on the back in our sin, saying, there, there now, that's okay. Not that big a thing. You're going to beat us half to death because of that sin. He hates the sin. And He will do whatever it takes to separate you and me from our beloved sin. So, here you have it. The wonder that, first of all, God would forgive us, but He will never do it at the expense of His justice. And that is what took the cross for God to forgive sinners like us. If not for the cross, there is no forgiveness for us. We're, I'm, I'm already working on a Sunday morning sermon out of Second Corinthians 5 on reconciliation, and it's just amazing to me how the cross, the word cross, never used in that passage, but the idea of the cross is just woven into the warp and woof of the whole passage. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How did he do it? At the cross. That's it. And if there's no cross, if there's no judgment on my sin, then there can be no forgiveness for me. And God has judged him in my place that he might be just. He loves what we learn. His strength loves judgment. He demands justice. And he will judge. And yet he has judged it in the person of another. And that then is the third reason. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. 
worship at His holy hill. In the Old Testament, you didn't just worship God anywhere you felt like it. You came to a specific place. In fact, Moses told them in Deuteronomy, when you get in the land, God's going to, He's going to choose a place for His name. I mentioned last Sunday morning Sunday school, the Samaritans said that's Mount Gerizim down in Samaria. We know from the revelation that we have in the Old Testament that it was the threshing floor of Aruna. Y'all knew that, didn't you? The threshing floor of Aruna. David had numbered the people. God had sent the death angel literally into the land. He stood with his sword drawn over Jerusalem. And David went down to the threshing floor of Aruna and offered offering and propitiated God. This was a place where God would be propitiated. They said, this is the place. On that place, they built the temple. That's how they knew where God had chose the place for His name. It's the place where He would be propitiated. And so notice that we are to exalt Him in verse 9, our Lord, and we're to worship Him, but we're to worship in a particular way. Again, a place of His choosing, a place of His revealing, and we're to worship Him in a way that He Himself has given to us. There is a fascinating story. Well, it's an interesting story, but there's a fascinating statement made in the life of David uh, you recall that Absalom had killed his older brother and ran off to Gesher, was up there, there's his mother's side of the family, the guy up there was king. So he found asylum in Gesher because he knew he'd killed, he'd murdered his brother, so he ought to die. You know, that's what the law and the king's supposed to be. What's the king supposed to do? He's the executive branch. He's supposed to be executing the law, even if it's your own son. But anyway, David, after a while, you have to understand Absalom apparently is the oldest living son. He's the heir apparent to the throne. And David's heart was to bring him back. But how can you do this and, and be a righteous king? Well, Joab hires a woman of Tekoa. Tekoa is a little village about 10 miles or so north of Jerusalem. And uh, gets her to come down and put on an act. She's to dress all in mourning and, you know, everything, sackcloth and ash, all that good stuff. She's a hired weeper, she turned on the tears, and she comes to David with this tear-jerking story about how she had two boys, and they were working out in the field, and they got in a fight, and one of them killed the other one. And now she says, all my relatives want the one that's left, they want to kill him. And that's what the relatives are supposed to do. They're supposed to execute vengeance on the murderer, except most of the time the murderer wouldn't be right there in the family, it'd be somebody outside the family, but in this case, it's the other brother. And so she's pleading with David, well, well, David, you know, I've already lost one son. Do I have to lose two? In other words, I'm being punished here through all of this. And so she, David is a sucker for his own story being told to him in the third person. That's what happened when Nathan, the prophet, came about the man with the sheep, you know. Okay, anyway, he's, he's, still, he's still falling for it. Because what she's doing, she's telling him his story, you see. And the whole sense is she gets him to say, no harm will come to your other son. I'm going to spare your other son. If anybody touches a hair of his head, send them to me. I'll take care of it. And then she turns the table on him and says, you're the one at fault here. That's what you're doing. 
And the whole sense is you need to bring your boy back home. You've already lost one son. Why do you have to lose two? He tries. He brings Absalom back. But you talk about somebody who's trying to ride the fence. He brings him back, but he won't see him. Won't talk to him. Absalom finally gets frustrated. He, he, he wants Joab to make a, arrangements. Joab won't do it. So he uh, burns up Joab's wheat field. And suddenly Joab's at his front door. And, uh, and he gets an audience with David. In other words, the point is David knew he's caught. How does, he, how does he show justice and mercy at the same time? How does he make that work? And he couldn't make it work. Even though in one sense he sort of, sort of forgave Absalom, the resentment in Absalom's heart grew and grew and grew from that moment to the time he drove his father off the throne and attempted a coup. You understand? He made a complete flop of this, this attempt to emulate what God has done. He's trying to show mercy and judgment at the same time. How do you do that? Anyway, in the middle of that discussion, I'm, I'm beating around the bush here, but it's a good bush. <laughs> Second Samuel 14. Why this is important is because here that widow lady, in the middle of her story, when she turns the tables on David, she says something that gives us a clue as to how the Old Testament people saw the temple rituals, the sacrifices, how they saw the ceremonial law. She gives, her, she gives a clue here. In 2 Samuel 14 and verse 14, For we must needs die, and there is water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again, Neither doth God respect any person. In other words, you and I are just, to God, we're just sort of like water. You know, that's, what, what's our expression? What, that's uh, water under the bridge, or what, what's, and, there, and there's something like, just, it's water spilled on the ground. It's gone, it's over. In other words, to God, we are like, we come, we live, we pass off the scene. It's just like water under the bridge. We're, we're nothing, well, you know, compared to God. And, and secondly, God doesn't respect any person. He doesn't pay, play favorites. He, and, and that doesn't mean that He doesn't show favor, but it simply means that He doesn't let down the standard of law for anybody. He doesn't let sin slide, no matter who it is. Okay? She's saying this to David. God, to him, we're like water poured on the ground. He is not a respecter of persons. Yet, doth he devise means that his banished is not expelled from him. You see, David has banished Absalom. And she is saying, God devises means by which his banished is not expelled from him. God makes a way back home. That's what she's saying. That's an amazing statement. This shows a tremendous grasp of God's purposes from somebody that lived a thousand years before Jesus. That what God is doing is providing in the sacrifices of the law a remedy for my sin, and I get to come back 
I can be restored. There's a way by which I can come home. That's the prodigal son. People ask me, where's Jesus in that story? Is he the fatted calf that's slain? Is he the robe that's put on the boy's back? Where's Jesus in that story? It's the road back home. That's where Jesus is. That there is a way to be restored to the Father. You see? Do you realize that in the earliest description of Christianity, there was a term they used over and over again. You'll find it in the book of Acts, especially in Paul. He said, I persecuted this way unto death. He says when he's on trial, after the way they call heresy, so worship I God. The thing about Christianity, the thing that differentiated it from Judaism wasn't the what. They all believed the same God, read the same Scripture. It wasn't the what, it's the how. That what's different about Christianity is the way. I can go this way to God. There's that, what we read in Hebrews, that new and living way through the veil of His flesh. I've got a way now. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the early I like these early descriptions of Christianity, and that's the earliest. It's this way. Well, what does that way do? That way is a way that God has provided for His banished to return, come back home. And unlike Absalom, the way God does it, And that's why you see in David, as much as he tried to emulate it, he just couldn't do it. He failed miserably because Absalom's heart was never changed. In our case, we have our sin forgiven. We get to come back home, and yet our heart is changed. I often say that it's sort of like if we... uh, What's the prison down here, Parchman? Dave, where you were? Yeah, okay. Uh, Parchman. Can you imagine the governor... uh, saying, uh, I've decided to pardon all the prisoners in parchment. You know, next week, we're going to unlock the gate and let them all loose. I've decided to give a blanket pardon. I mean, after all, I'm a Christian. I'm called upon to forgive. So God forgives us. We're sinners. He pardons us. So we're going to pardon all these criminals. How many of you think that's a good idea? How many of you think, and let's suppose that we add in addition to that, the governor says, not only am I going to pardon them and forgive them for all the past crimes they've committed, I'm going to pardon them for all the future crimes they might commit. How many thinks that's a good idea? Isn't that what God did for us? Not only forgave us all sins that are past, but all sins that we might commit in the future. He has given us a blanket pardon. Well, what would you suspect those criminals are going to do, having been forgiven all their crimes in the past and given a pardon for any crime they might? You're going to lock your door tonight? I'd lock mine. I'd get the gun. I'd sit there up all night long, sitting there at the door. Well, why don't you and I do that? Because the heart has been changed. Suppose the governor says, and I'm going to adopt, every single one of them as my own children, and they're going to come to the governor's mansion, and they're going to eat at their table, and I'm going to put my character, my heart, my spirit 
into them. That's a different thing. That's what David never could do with Absalom. He could bring him back, but he couldn't give him a heart of love for his father. God not only has brought us back, He has devised means to bring back the banished, but He's also devised a means whereby we never want to stray again if we can keep from it. We're going to worship Him. It's a holy... You begin to see why this is a holy way, isn't it? It's different. It's other than. It's not natural. This isn't how I would have done it. It's not how you would have done it. That's why I believe it's supernatural. It bears all the marks that this is just... It's just the way God would have done it. But it's not the way I would have. It's not the way man would have done it. Man would have done it like David and made a mess of it. God's the only one who can pull this off. As I said Sunday, if you had asked somebody before the fact, try to come up with what God would look like if He became man and lived among us, well, we'd come up with every kind of figment of imagination you can imagine with. And yet, when God comes and we read the Gospels, we say, well, yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, easy to see it after the fact, isn't it? Same thing here. If we ask ourselves, how would God restore criminals? How would He bring them back? How would He reconcile those who have dared to brave His rule and His judgment? And if we were to ask that before the fact, what would we say? Well, just... Have a law, they got to straighten up and fly right, and they get good enough, I'll let them come back. That's how we do it. But not God. The gospel bears marks of its supernatural origin, of its heavenly origin. It's, I don't, if you didn't know one thing about God, you know enough about you to realize you wouldn't have done it this way. No other man you know would have done it this way. This is only the way. God's the only one who will do it this way. A holy God has this holy way of us coming home. And that's why we as Christians say there is no other way. Now our opponents say, my, aren't you proud? Aren't you arrogant to say that you've got the only way? I didn't say that. God said that. And it is not, and they, and they will tell us, well, after all, the Buddhists have their way, the Hindus have their way, everybody's sort of, God's up there on the top of the mountain, everybody's got their path. We're not talking about the way that man reaches up to God. We're talking about the one way that God has reached down to man. Yeah, there's a lot of roads men are trying to get to God on. There's just one road by which God has broken through into human history to redeem for Himself a people through the blood of His Son. We'll stop there. God's holy. Holy, holy, holy. You see the holy, holy, holy part here? Holy because of who He is. Holy because of what He does. Holy because of what He has said, what He has revealed to us. It's a good, good nickname for this song.